0: Hello, and welcome to the Attributive Security Podcast, where we discuss and share ideas around perennial, topical, and emerging information security issues. My name is Martin, and today I'm joined by my regular co-host Maurice and our guest Yako. In this episode, we're discussing risk appetite and how having a better understanding of our risk appetite can improve our risk management and ultimately the security of our organizations. Worries, maybe you could start by introducing Yaku to our listeners.
1: Yes, I will do. Uh, although to be honest, Martin, I wonder whether Yaku needs an introduction. As some of our listeners may know, pre-COVID-19, I was traveling a lot, and in at least 50 percent of the cities I went, there was at least one person in the group I met who knew Yaku. So for those of you listeners who know Yaku already, there's no point in me saying Yaku can be controversial at times, that Yaku is a genuine person, a friendly and honest guy with a saps a heart in the right place. And for those who never met Yaku before, well, he's a genuine person, uh, friendly, honest, with a saps heart in the right place. Back in episode
0: four, we talked about business whisk and focused somewhat on whisk ownership. Right at the end of that episode, Maurice, you mentioned risk appetite, and I agree that it is a significant enough topic to devote another conversation to. Let's
1: discuss it in more depth now. Anyway, so I was actually thinking about this, uh, the topic uh, of risk appetite. What I see in the field is that people, when it comes to the risk appetite, it becomes a sort of the one size fits all risk appetite or the aggregation model is a critical risk in operations is aggregated such that on the board's level, it's a green risk. But how often do you actually see a client that's got a
0: mature approach to risk appetite?
2: It's really difficult, and and I would actually go so far as to say that, especially from a security perspective, right, because once we we start talking about risk in itself, uh, how companies measure risk, actually, it's a very, very different thing. They measure it in many different ways, and, and, and different things matter to them. And financial risk is usually up there. Uh, if i if i think back on how risk structures are are put together set set together for the most part what i see is that it security risk or computer related cybersecurity risk whatever you want to call it nowadays because it has many different names right is hidden away somewhere in the cio dashboard under it something or the other i know that there's this fallacy that the board is taking and and i, I very specifically say fallacy that the board is taking security very seriously okay if they are taking it so seriously, then why do we still not have the resources to actually combat the cyber risk effectively?
0: How many clients, how many businesses do we really see that have a better handle on their risk appetite than, we've got a medium appetite. And when you start looking at, I think what you were touching on, getting the budget. If you don't give somebody the budget to effectively identify threats and address them, then implicitly you're actually saying you've got a, a high risk appetite. You're actually willing to take a lot of risk because you're not actually providing the budget to counteract that.
2: In in a certain way, yes. But I think it's the the challenge that we have is that it is really hard to quantify what we do. Incredibly hard. I mean it, it's it's hard to quantify financial risk as it is, but quantifying security risk information security risk is even harder. Because what do we really point to? With what's the actual figures that we get to point to? We have some the cost of the breach statistics, and I'm doing a little bit of air quotes here, right? Where different companies put together put together estimates of how much they think it costs to resolve breaches, while it's helpful i don 't think it 's super accurate, purely from the perspective of it depends on how you resolve the breach, what it 's going to cost to resolve it. So if you hire in Joe Local, who costs ten dollars an hour and he takes two hundred hours, your cost is going to be significantly less than hiring in big, bad consultant. Guru who has a cost of seven thousand dollars an hour, argument's sake, right? <laughs> and also takes two hundred hours to do so. It's it's all relative in in my view. Uh, we can we can look back at 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 some really hard statistics where they point towards things like notpetya stuff that happened WannaCry yeah. notpetya. Musk was been very public in disclosing figures and disclosing numbers. And they said, I can't remember exactly, but it was somewhere in the vicinity of about half a billion dollars, five hundred million dollars, something like that. Maybe, maybe a hundred million either way. I'm not hundred percent sure. The problem with that is though that they, they immediately turned around and said, but we can handle it. So we're fine. Drop in the bucket,
0: right? Yeah. <laughs> so, Another data point there. Team I was working with, we were doing a red team against a global bank. We were expending... A couple of people, a couple of days in this period, we heard back later that their response effort to that, you know, their blue team effort turned out to be sort of 500 man hours. So it was a vastly magnified, well, that, that, that's it, because um, you know, because if, if you blue. had
2: to put together the hours of every person working on that grid, so you might have two guys on the red team, right, spending 48 hours each, argument's sake. And then you have a blue team of 20 yeah. people spending the same amount of time, so relative to to what you're trying to achieve it, it it is blown out of proportion but that's also the reality that we deal with right how big is your sock how strong is your sock how well can you respond to these threats um something that you and i have discussed quite a bit Martin, in the past when we look at risk and risk appetite where does tolerance come into the picture right because for me we have a lot of discussion as an industry right we have a lot of discussion about risk appetite but we don't talk about tolerance all that much it's not something that's discussed
0: I think everybody, you know, all of us and, you know, our listeners could could have a stab and think they know how to define risk appetite, but there's not it's not really uh commonly defined. I I looked in ISO 31000, 27005 and I don't I don't have access to them right now, but I don't think it's used at all. It's briefly defined in ISO Guide 73, which is the risk management vocabulary document, and it's basically the amount of and type of risk that an organisation is willing to pursue or retain. How many people and, actually and that's it. look so at I, that pursue side? It's... But going back to what you said about about tolerance, I I actually see tolerance as a as a slightly different thing. So I see the risk appetite as you know what you are the amount of risk you are looking to pursue or or retain, and the tolerance I use that more in an engineering sense. So it's how far away from that line in the sand mm-hmm. you're prepared to accept being. And some of that is more of an operational concern or constraint. You can't hit the the nail on the head every time. And I think Jack Jones did a RSA talk, I think, last year, talking about risk appetite, and he actually used the, the sort of setting the line in the sand and behavior modification as, as his two sort of different ways of looking at that. You set the speed limit, uh, you, you reduce the speed uh-huh. limit, say let's say from 50 down to 30, and You're not actually going to prosecute somebody for doing 32 because actually you're you're quite happy that it's come, come down and yeah, maybe, you know, you've got tolerances on some of the devices and stuff and they're putting an effort in. And actually, you're you're going to accept that, but you're setting your your line at 30, but maybe your enforcement line well, is a 35. Here's, you know, here's another way. To it right. or
2: so I I've I've been thinking about this quite a bit, believe it or not. And if we can put it back into a little bit of geek talk, if we're going to call it that, being nerds to a certain degree, if I had to explain to my to my teenage son what the difference was between risk appetite and risk tolerance, it's actually not that hard to do in layman's terms, in my view. What do you think about this? When you're playing Call of Duty, your risk appetite is defined uh-huh. by yourself in how much risk you're willing to take to run into a situation all guns blazing. Right. Are you going to are you going to run in and shoot the hell out of anything that moves or try to are you supremely confident in your abilities to be able to outrun and outgun everything because your your ability to Or your confidence in your own ability literally dictates how much risk you're willing to take, what your appetite is. Whether that's right or wrong is a different question. But if I feel I am the bestest Call of Duty player in the world, I can outrun and outgun anybody, then I will run headlong into any situation. Whether I can tolerate that risk is a completely different matter because it depends on do I have the right size gun? Do I have enough armor? Can I aim well enough? How well can the other guy aim? So I might think that my appetite is fine and I'm good to go, but I can only tolerate a pea shooter bullet to the head and then I'm dead. Which completely
0: whacks out the... (laughs) Okay, so a couple of points. Yeah, a couple of points from that. So you're talking about, I guess, what is your Uh, capacity for loss as well? You're talking about risk and our listeners won't be surprised I'm going to start talking about positive and negative risk. You're talking about... What are yeah. your opportunities of going in there? You're, you're taking a, an offensive point of view. My other one, you, you know, mm-hmm. you've brought up a specific scenario. I think it's important to realize, and the, the whole blanket statements of, oh, we have a medium risk appetite, misses this. So it's very contextual. My attitude to risk for retirement savings versus winter sports versus I want to go to the Absolutely. casino, a whole lot of difference. And it absolutely applies that for a, for a given business, they will have different attitudes for different classes of risk, and their risk attitude will be very different to one of their competitors. And, and I'm very
2: happy that you say that because a couple of years ago, with Cossack, right, we all attend Cossack quite regularly, and every year there seems to be a prevailing theme. Yeah. Um, <laughs> about uh, in, in in Cossack, right? So not 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 necessarily a formal. Or a formally defined theme, but more a, a theme that we sort of accept amongst ourselves. And you're talking right? about
1: a theme as in, a, uh, as, in, as in topics? So Yeah, yeah. So one year
2: we had, when the word cyber came back, we had a little cyber theme. And we were all joking and laughing about it right. and, and, yeah. and, and, and doing things like that, right? But a couple of years ago, a lot of of things came out, even in a lot of the presentations that were held, and I don't think it was planned like that, but context all of a sudden became something very, very important. All of us started talking about context, but the word context yeah. featured quite a lot. And so context is actually king. There is nothing more important in in my humblest of opinion than context, because it dictates where you're going, what you're doing, where you're going to, and how you're going to do it. If you don't have the right context, then you absolutely don't know what's going to happen. You can't dictate that. It's the, the thing that sets you on the road that you're going towards, right?
1: Well, it's the understanding of the context, because if you don't, you don't have a scope. So it's the understanding of the context. That is key, right? If you don't understand the yeah. context, you don't have a scope, so you're lost, you're boundless.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Everyone has the context. They may ignore it. <laughs> but yeah, you you got to understand it.
2: Yeah, I think maybe... So if we if we roll everything back and we're having a discussion about risk, I believe that as an industry, potentially, and Maybe I should speak for myself and not sort of blanket the industry, but, but I, I honestly do think that it's a, it's, a, it's a failing of our industry as a whole, that we are not good at articulating context. We're very bad at that. I, that's actually what,
1: what we brought forward in the SWOT uh, podcast there. Your risk assessment should be in context of, so you don't discuss network package problems in the financial risk assessment and vice versa. And that may also have to do with the fact that in the industry, we quickly dive into solutions for any type of problem that we think might be there without realizing the context, because having a tick box approach, having a box implemented, a new appliance sounds good, doesn't it? It
2: does. And and, and maybe maybe I can be a little bit controversial in, in, in the following statement. Don't be I, a little be controversial. controversial Don't be a little. This, right? If we look at, at what's happening around us in the last year or so, right? not the the pandemic stuff I'm I'm talking about in in, in our industry, in the information security industry, right? We've had a couple of massively big breaches of ourselves. The latest one, I think, being the worst of them. But we have come to a point where we assume that everybody has the same problem. Yeah. Because I can buy software off the shelf. and, And if you... Let, let's let's be realistic and, and from a marketing perspective or from a sales perspective, if you, if you look at, at what people are selling, what companies are selling, their products aren't necessarily bad. That's not what I'm saying. But the product assumes that everybody has the same problem. Exactly the same problem because my solution will fix all of your problems. That's kind of the messaging that goes out. If you buy my thing, my thing will do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H. And all of the rest of it, and like multi multi-function appliances solve these problems. And the Swiss knife, this Swiss yeah. Army knife approach, right?
0: Yeah, it took a little bit of time, but I, I have seen some of the essentially essentially marketing of our product mm. would have prevented the fire. <laughs> yeah, come on! Um, <laughs>
2: see, see, <that's, laughs> really? That's, I mean, not, come on, that, guys! Mean, thing, right, and so they don't know any more of the, the context that's than the thing, I do. The thing, is they they sh- don't know
0: context, right? But they're and, they're and, still going out there and
2: asserting. Yeah, exactly. Have, and that's have, the thing is they assume this. they assume that they know what the context is. They assume that their thing will solve all of your problems. I remember a very, very long time ago, it was in the early 2000s. I was part of a project where the whole idea of the project was so the, the client came to us the company that I was working for at the time, and said, you know, please help help us save money. We want to spend more money on security, but we simply can't. We're spending so much money on other stuff. I, I, I have no budget, was, was what the IT manager said to us. Help me. Find more money. Uh, help me. Help me spend my budget more wisely. How can I do it? We ended up getting rid of. Well, in those days, millions of rands were lots of money, right? Uh, so me being originally being from South Africa, millions of rands is lots of money. So that would be the equivalent of millions of euros in licensing costs, where they bought products which were rated absolutely top by the gardeners of the world, for instance, and the foresters, where they were saying, you know, these are the best products that you can possibly buy. These are amazing products. But they were only using about a hundredth of what the product was was made to do. They bought a Humvee and and what they needed was a shopping trolley. You know, (laughs) it it really was as simple as that.
0: Seeing as you mentioned Gartner there, there was a, a Gartner post I saw, I think it was early last year, saying that, you know, our investments aren't aligned to our risk. And I looked at that and I and I thought, well, I don't think we should be aligning our investments to our risk. We should be aligning our investments to where our yes. residual risk exceeds our risk appetite. If we're already within our risk appetite, why are we investing money there? We should be investing money somewhere else. And that one of those uses for Having a a well articulated risk appetite is is you can more readily tell where you should be investing that money.
1: What
2: does make me and and, and I'm not sure if this is maybe a false sense of security or, or or something like that, right? But one thing that that makes me kind of happy to see is that a lot of the breaches that are being discovered at the moment are incredibly sophisticated breaches, right?
0: yes allegedly (laughs) highly sophisticated
2: breaches now the reason that kind of makes me happy is because it 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 takes it takes away the attention from the basics being done so badly very seriously look at a breach report for the last all the breach reports in the last two years right if you look at all the breach reports for the last couple of years then look at how many of those breaches could have been prevented if they actually uh, did the basics right.
1: So you're saying they those weren't advanced attacks?
2: On the surface, they were, maybe. But for the most part, no. And yeah, maybe it's a little bit controversial again to say that. But it is one of those things where 90% of these things could have been prevented uh, if the basics had been if done the right. house was and in order. Yeah. And it, it, it really is. Getting back to basics, having good, sound password policies. It sounds so ridiculous, right? But eight characters, one special character, one number. That That's 60s talk, guys. I mean, look at look at that. That was advice that was given in the 1960s. Uh, yes,
1: for time sharing, right? right? Not for authentication, um, for time sharing. Yeah,
2: so it's absolutely ridiculous to think that that people still use that, that people still do that, and yet open up a policy, a password policy, and see what it says. That's kind of what you see.
1: Well, something else that is completely wrong in our industry is that I still see people that working in our industry blaming the user to be the problem.
2: Well, I would want to agree with that. To it is the it is down to the user. And think think a little bit on. Uh, I don't know how often you guys are subjected to user um, awareness programs.
1: Uh, guilty, mm. not that much.
0: <laughs> nope. <laughs> not so much recently but yeah i've been there where they're uh, i'm I'm, I'm sorry to say but most
2: most of again it's maybe a massive massive generalization but most of the user uh, awareness stuff that we see happening today it's the same stuff that happened when i started working and that's been a good 22 years now right 23 years it's the same kind of stuff that that we're doing they they're getting a little bit more inventive with it right that much is absolutely certain because we have nice videos and we have all this kind of stuff right it's brilliant problem though is that it's not changing the user's behavior because the user isn't really incentivized to alter their behavior to that degree there's no consequence for the user there's a consequence for the CISO that I've seen but the user who messed up the administrator who's responsible for using password on the mail server the um, The administrator who loaded the default Cisco config with default passwords nothing happens to that guy however the guy that gets in trouble is the guy who is responsible for and again I'm using air quotes the guy who's responsible for fixing the security of the company but has no budget no mandate no power
1: just so, a title. Th- and that's a wrong delegation. He should not be made responsible for for securing oh, the company. Yeah. Right? He should be made responsible for I couldn't agree making or. sure that the company is able to secure the company. <laughs> uh, slightly different.
0: And at yet, I know, I know. Yep, but that also has to do with
1: <laughs> uh, those people positioning themselves as being responsible for securing the company. That is something that we need to stop doing there, too. But that that might just be a whole very controversial and a different avenue.
0: I, and I, I wasn't well, talking about... So how do we relate this back to risk appetite? I think, as I said earlier, if you're doing these ineffective measures, and these ineffective measures are embedded in the organization, and that is the way you do things, then you are implicitly accepting that you're taking a lot of risk. And I, th- I think if you start trying to look at uh, what your risk is, how you're approaching risk. I think I think your risk appetite is a has its own life cycle outside of your risk management life cycle so I- and you need to manage that. But I think if you start looking at that, you start looking at well, how do we how do we start empowering people in our business to make decisions? How do we you know, if we can't define our risk appetite, are we not actually increasing the likelihood that we're going to have slow poor decision-making and we're going to fail to have effective well, delegation of that decision-making as well because we're relying on the subjective inherent gut feel uh, to risk of our senior leaders and ev- everything needs to
1: to go up to them to actually make a, a decision that and in addition martin uh, the exaggeration we use we instantly say it's a high risk so, or it's it's a, it's a very big impact that's what we do too
2: i i agree but there's, there's a dynamic in risk management that I, I feel we, we can be better at. Again, the military should probably be better at this than anybody else. But we, we think about, uh, when, we, when we talk about uh, vulnerability management, or, or when we talk about penetration testing and a whole bunch of other things, we like, as security people, we like to divide the world into the strategic and the tactical and operational worlds, right? Those three little words that, that pop up so many times. And, Thanks, yeah, Alvin the military uses a term called situational awareness. Yep. Situational awareness is something that is continuously changing. It is something that happens on the ground as people perceive things, as new information comes in, et etc. et cetera. That's something we are really bad at and which, we, which we're which we getting better at. I, I think in some cases that I've noticed where, where good threat intelligence is used at, at, at the right levels and for the right reasons. But that's kind of it's kind of one of those things where where i feel if we are able to do better or be better at situational well, awareness if we can define we that we have better, to be better we have that, to be
1: better in situational awareness the context right it needs to be in context so we need to be able, instead of using the scare tactics of uh, using the threats to present to the business, we should be able to represent them as the effect on impact. What is the impact on what the business is? But
0: again, this comes back to context yes. and the fact that it's not just you You look at your context and then you use your context well, to drive your risk management. Your context is dynamic. I, I have a question. Your context yeah. is constantly changing and you actually got to figure out, well, okay, I did this assessment in that context, that context has now changed. What, what have I invalidated? What do I need to relook at? How has that changing context actually changed the work I've previously done?
2: Well, we say we don't want to use FUD anymore, right? And, and I'm a very big supporter of not using FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. That's the, the, the term that we use too. That's what we used to call it. So scaring the bejesus out of people about security. If you don't do this, the world is going to hack you. It takes 10 seconds for a machine in the wild to be hacked. You know, you can, I can shout these mantras. The sky is falling. Yes. We can shout these mantras out for hours and hours on end. And, you know, be that guy, that guy on the street corner shouting, the sky is falling. I've done that too. Yeah. And as, but as an industry, as an industry, I feel that we, we went away from FUD for quite a long time, and all of a sudden, it's back. If you don't do the following, then you will be hacked, and... Look at the marketing of most of the big security companies out there today. I will not name names and things like that, right? It's not a name and shame game. But FUD is back. And it looks like it's back to stay, at least, because that's that's the rhetoric that I'm hearing. And I don't like it, if I'm honest. Maybe I'm I'm starting to become a dinosaur or something. And maybe it is time for it to get back. I, I, I'm not sure. Um, I would love to hear your opinions on it. I, I certainly think it's, as we would in polite English say,
0: hoo-ha. Oh... <laughs> <laughs> um. I think there's a everything goes through translation layers. We've talked about talking in the language of the audience, and as you go up from your pen test report that that gets filtered, you translate that into different languages as you go up the the chain of of the business and yes there there will at times be certain inflation and i think but I think actually some of that is just people fighting to get budget relative to somebody else, and it's just like I need to. I need to make my risk sound worse than his risk so that I'll get more budget.
2: All right. So, so, and, and I, I see that happening all the time. And I'm, I'm I'm trying to be a little bit of a devil's advocate here because I think risk is one of those topics that, and I, I think certainly in the right company, we can discuss for so many hours on end and actually just sort of talk circles around ourselves. Because I think for the most part, and, and I feel certainly with you guys, because you've had this conversation and with these conversations before, I think we agree that we haven't gotten it right yet. We're not there yet, and we're okay with that because we're trying to find the answers to it. I, I don't think everybody feels that they have the or I think that some folks might feel that they have the answer already and that they're comfortable with that answer. But risk is something that for, for information security, and I want to try and phrase this properly, I don't think it's been given the right home because it's been given its own home. And, and, and being a SABSA guy, was inevitable. It took me more than half an hour to say the word SABSA for the first time, right? (laughs) I tried and I couldn't um, uh, stick to my own. uh, uh, But being a SABSA guy, I I really honestly and truly believe that security is a property of something else. I cannot stress
1: that enough. I can't agree more.
2: And so, yeah. And and I, I can't, for the life of me, think that we want to put IT security or information security risk separate.
0: I think maybe there is an argument for that, because, you know, we want to categorize our risks and subcategorize our risks. And at some point, I think we, we probably do want to look at risks in terms of that information technology devices or logical device scenario as being different to an environmental risk or a financial risk. But I think I think and it's interesting you were you were going in the same direction as me. I think we talked back when we were talking to Bill. I think about risk ownership, and I think I think this is part of the problem: is we get well, people who feel that they own the risk, and then they need to fight for the recognition and the you know that 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 risk is is sort of considered important across the business, and they get all the kudos for managing that risk, and they really should be managing that risk for somebody else. What they should be doing is allowing those true risk owners to make an informed risk decision by providing them with the information which i think is less emotive of well this is what could happen this is what your impacts could be this is how likely we think it is or the frequency and then actually then when you you bring in somebody else and and they're actually making those decisions and maybe you're then managing that risk on their behalf you you start getting away from that oh well you know my risk's bigger than your risk because it it's it's not your risk at all. It's somebody else's risk that you're just trying to inform them about.
2: And I think maybe, so you, you, you said something very interesting here we, we, when you said my risk, your risk. It's not my risk in the context of where we're dealing with risk in the company. It's not my risk and your risk. It's our risk. It's the company's risk. As the individual, at five o'clock in the afternoon, you pack your bags and you leave. You go away. You go home. The risk is the company's risk. It's not your in a certain way, I suppose you can argue that it's your risk, but it is not an individual's risk. It is the company's risk and it's not being looked at the, at it in that way. If you understand what I'm, well, I hope I'm, I'm articulating this properly, right? It's really, really hard because people are fighting over, yeah, my risk is more important. It's not about my risk and your risk. It's the company's risk. And what is, what is the bigger risk? What will lead? And, and this is again, the context, what will lead to the biggest opportunity or Loss event,
1: yeah. So you're talking about the impact, right? Negative or positive impact, positive, uh, yeah, for the business, mm-hmm. uh, the organization as a whole. Of course, uh, individuals are managing those risks. If you're looking at a company, that company doesn't exist, it only exists because we believe it exists. But that's um, another <sighs> different avenue. There, <laughs> <laughs> it's not a independent sentient, uh, and it's not thing, my isn't? ideas. There, I, I copied that idea from uh, Harari uh, from his book, The Humankind. Mm-hmm. I I think you're right there. The challenge we face is, you've said a lot there, Jakku, and I, I agree with a lot of what you said there. Information security should not be a separate silo or a separate uh, pillar in the organization. It should be integrated into everything, right? Just as SAPS approaches it at property of something else. The challenge I currently face in, in the migration there is one of those is the risk appetite. Information security has this challenge of when something is wrong, in one of their systems like user access there's something wrong with the user access management it has a certain risk and the impact of this is x and that is beyond the appetite set and then it moves up to the business and there in the aggregation model that risk appetite is then just well it's different and therefore the high risk from a subdomain shows up as green
2: i I hear you 100 and i i think It is safe to say that I could not agree with you more if I wanted to, right? I guess if I had to try and answer that or quantify, justify why you're struggling with this so much is, again, I shall be controversial, I think. We are such a stagnant industry. Between the three of us, if we add our experience together, that's more than 60 years of experience, right? Closer to 70 years of experience, right? How much has really changed in your job in the last 25 years? Well, Really, honestly, not much, right? Because the same techniques, the same ideas, the same way we tried to protect things 20 years ago, they're still being tried. It's like that donkey, right, hitting its head against the wall.
0: I think at a certain point when you've conceptualized things enough, then yeah, you've got a point there. Right. So the down in the details, you know, obviously a lot and of so, change.
2: And so and so yeah, in in the in the details how we do it how we do it has changed. The techniques have changed, but our approach to it is still pretty much the same. And, and, for the most part. I know I overgeneralize, but I'm trying to to make no, that's a, all right. a, yeah, a, yeah. a point about the non-evolution of, of our industry here, right? So, again, on the surface, what we're doing, I remember I was I, the very, very first conference that I ever attended. Conference, it was like this trade show thing. I was working for an ISP at the time, and we had a small little booth, and we were still talking um, uh, uh, analog leased lines, right? And, and, okay. and 64K DigiNet lines, right? This is this a long time ago. And there was this one guy who was selling software that he'd written. I, I had no idea what it does. He had a a fairly big booth and most of his booth was taken up by an enormous computer, right? It was this monstrosity of a thing with lights blinking and it was was kind of crazy. And I was having a booth and him and we started chatting and stuff and he was laughing. He said, well, this thing does nothing. And he opened the side door to it and it was just an empty shell with a laptop inside oh but i have blinky lights that's it that was the thing as he said that nobody nobody was interested in looking at a piece of software on a laptop but this huge monstrosity that he he he'd put together right it had people people were like wow this is amazing it's how you dress it up and i think that we're really good at that we dress things up at the at the top layer so we dress things up and make and it look all pretty we get back to snake oil. right there, there we go right we, we it it oh it's, it's pretty and it's blinky and it's it's gorgeous and it's but down below same shit different day I think is the right uh, <laughs> that's what it boils down to and so what Maurice was saying earlier and that's that's the thing that triggered me into into this little bit of a, uh, the, the rant that I'm that I'm having now is very specifically you mentioned mentioned access management if you look at the way that the automotive industry has evolved over the last twenty five years things that matter uh, uh, become the baseline so and and again it's going back to the getting the basics right but the basics we had 20 years ago and the basics that we need today are different things and so in an in an automobile 25 or 30 40 years ago whatever it was um certainly where i'm from um uh, 40 years ago was a different story but you had uh it started with uh, with seat belts seat belts got upgraded to airbags And that's gone one step ahead and one step higher and one step higher and one step higher, right? And so as a baseline standard, what the European Union dictates is what is the absolute minimum safety measures you need in an automobile. That's upgraded every single year. That bar goes higher. But we don't see it as going higher. It just becomes the new norm. It becomes the new normal. Mm -hmm. And there are certain certain manufacturers, which I think is safe to say, are the, the trailblazers. Somebody once said to me, if you want to know what's going to be standard on a car, In 10 years from now, look at what the Mercedes S-Class is doing today. And by one or two years, either way, uh, that was a pretty accurate statement. There are trailblazers. There are the the guys really are way ahead of their time in how they approach things and how they do things. And the rest of the industry adopts that. And that's fine because they refine it and they improve on it. If you look at the first airbags that were put into the S-Class, right? They were shit. Well, even now, airbags still break people's faces and they do all sorts of nasty things, right? If you look at the first sat-nav that was put into that car, into that trailblazer, it was horrible. It was improved upon later. As it was tweaked and refined but it became the new normal and that's something that i truly hope we will be able to get right not only as the security industry but specifically in risk management we're looking at how to protect things the same way we did 20 years ago i i think it's time that we shift that baseline so like the new normal the new basics the, the basic hygiene that should be the new normal right and not we should aspire to have great access management that should be implied that should just be there because we have the ability to do that it's not But i think
0: we're getting there as people move towards more managed solutions they're moving from an on-premise solution to a infrastructure as a service to a platform as as a service to anything as a service and they're actually removing a lot of the those concerns or at least transferring them to to somebody else those bars are are rising, I think. But I, I just want to go back to what Maurice was saying about aggregation. And that, you know, you talk about risks being aggregated upwards. I think talking about risk appetite, we need to be looking top down. Not It sounds very bottom up. And this is one of the challenges I, I certainly see with risk appetite is how do you disaggregate, I guess, um, these things. So you really want to be looking at, at the top level because it's, it's your business leader's the top level that are going to be setting the appetite originally that maybe that's a a risk appetite for loss of customer records now that needs to then be distributed across all of your applications and systems that maybe store customer records so that's going to go down to many different systems and applications that maybe have different owner, application owners and different risk owners and the difficulties come in how you actually say well if my risk appetite says, I'm okay with a 10% chance of losing 100,000 customer records in a year, how do you distribute that across all your different systems? And not just how do you distribute it across systems, but how do you then start looking at, is that in a single breach or is that multiple breaches across a year? So you've got the, all of, a lot of what we do is single loss event. We talk about single loss events and we don't actually look about You know, we talk about likelihood all the time. And I understand why we talk about likelihood all the time. But sometimes you actually need to consider frequency. It's not there's a 10% chance. It's, well, can I actually start having multiple events? And how am I going to start aggregating that? So I think you need to start top down. And then that's actually going to build the the mechanisms for how you sort of start aggregating that stuff up.
2: It sounds like you're almost talking about... A domino effect that that could happen, which is, which is something that we haven't we haven't seen a lot of, but there certainly are good examples of, do, of of some domino effects, right? Um, and and not only within security, so it's a security event that led to a domino effect in other parts of the business that was disastrous, right? Catastrophic in some cases. So th- there are a couple of things that come to mind when when I think of this, and, and I don't have the answers; these are observations, um, uh, if I'm honest. So the one thing is, I, I I think again we are really good at speaking our own language. Um, we're really good at talking about bits and bytes and vulnerabilities and code and all sorts of goodies. That that and I'm trying to keep it light. I'm not diving into too much detail now. But the boardroom doesn't understand that the the general business person, the the person who owns the risk, uh, they don't understand it. And frankly, they're not really interested in that. And they, and they shouldn't, shouldn't be. be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because they hired us to so- sort Exactly. It. And yeah. And so what I've seen is the way that that folks try to overcome that hurdle by presenting or justifying. So they don't present, they justify, they try to justify the the risk by giving these executives, these business people, stacks of paper with lots of details in them, which is even worse, right? See, I I think I, I, I,
1: I, I used to. You
0: mentioned Sabso, so I'm going to talk some Sabso now.
1: Just, just, just in between, Martin. Uh, Yaku, I used to have a shirt, right? And you remind me of this. The text uh, would say, if I can't convince you, I'll confuse you.
0: Yep. <laughs> 100% Yeah, <bad. laughs> I, I can't argue with that one. I think what I was going to say was, so you mentioned Sabsura. And in Sabsura, I think we would be looking at impact in terms of the impact on our attributes. Now, we're down in the weeds doing the technical stuff. We have our attributes. And we look at the impact in terms of our attributes. But when we're talking to somebody higher up that that hierarchy, we need to be talking about the impact to their attributes. Aside from the language, we need to be putting the the impacts in the context of what they care about. Now, what we care about, obviously, is going to be aligned to that because it's supporting the enablement of their objectives and the, the control. But we need to be talking about the impact in, in terms of what they care about, not, ju- not just trying right. to change the words so we don't use the buzzwords. We need to be saying this, this is going to affect the business or your part of the business in this way, not bits and bytes
1: on a you know, storage system somewhere. So actually, Martin, and of course, I already know this, but you're making a nice introduction here. There is no Swiss knife or Swiss army knife with a solution that solves all your problems. But then in addition, there's also not a Swiss army knife towards risk appetite and risk heat maps. There is a risk heat map and a different appetite for each and every attribute. Agreed. And, and this is how you can solve this aggregation.
0: In conclusion, I think we've strayed a little from our initial topic of risk appetite, but I think we've covered that it's important to consider our risk appetite within our risk management processes and practices. And that actually having that a separate view of our attitude to risk with its own articulation and its own life cycle and its own views on the business context is valuable in driving better risk management decisions throughout the organization and reducing the likelihood of slow and poor decision-making and enabling better delegation of uh, decision-making. Thank you for listening. We hope you found uh, today's episode interesting. Uh, Maintaining practical, realistic and actionable risk appetite statements I think would really improve clarity over your expectations and enable a better focus on your risk management activities. And that's something that's commonly overlooked but has a, a great potential to provide significant business returns. Please join us in the Tributive Security Podcast LinkedIn group if you'd like to discuss this topic further and let us know how you've been able to define and manage changing risk appetites within your environment. If you have the time, we'd appreciate a review or rating and welcome any feedback you have on what you like and what we could do differently or add in the future. We'll be back in the new year. Until then, stay safe out there.